you have a Bible, you can open to or scroll to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Stuart mentioned it in the announcements. Next week, during the plugging in time, as you know, for this month of July, we've been delighted to have uh, some of you younger kids in here with us. Um, next week, there will be a special time for plugging in. And part of the reason we're doing that next week, it's still July, but um, if you look ahead at the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to be dealing with a subject that is one that parents may wish to um, spend time talking with their children about, and not so much necessarily in here when we talk about um, the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. We'll pick up in verse 3 next week, uh, and so there will be a special time for the kids during plugging in. We've been studying the book of 1 Thessalonians this summer with the theme, Standing Firm and Pressing On, United with Christ. And, and really, that sort of outlines the letter, this letter of 1 Thessalonians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a very young church at Thessalonica, almost from the start. The Thessalonian believers were a group of people who were under persecution. They, they faced a threat almost immediately. Thessalonica was a major port city in the region of Macedonia, and so it was a pivotal city in terms of the spread of the gospel. We could take a look. There's a map here that we'll take a look at, and you can see um, Thessalonica up in the top left corner, that uh, yellowish gold area up in the northwest corner is the region of Macedonia. Paul went over to Thessalonica, having been called over there in a vision from God, preached, spent a short time there, began to face intense persecution, threats against his life and Silas, and so they left, headed southwest to Berea, helped plant a church there, and then traveled down to that green region and to Athens. And it is from Athens that Paul sends Timothy to Thessalonica and sends Timothy for the purpose of finding out how the church is doing. Uh, this church that has been born, that has received the gospel and been born under persecution, his concern is to see how they are holding up. And Timothy goes to Thessalonica and sees the good work that God is doing there, comes back to Paul in Athens with this extraordinarily encouraging report about what God is doing in Thessalonica amongst the believers, and that then prompts the writing of this letter. And what is clear from chapters 1 through 3 is that God has caused them to stand firm. He has caused the Thessalonian believers, even amidst persecution and all the threats and all the opposition of the culture, to stand firm and, and to begin to echo out from there the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so chapters 1 through 3 are in large part Paul giving praise to God for the work that is happening in the Thessalonian church. He is encouraged, and he is seeking to encourage them about standing firm in their faith and what God is doing. Then toward the end of chapter 3, as we saw last week, Paul began to shift, just start to move in his purpose just a little bit in that direction of now exhorting them to press on. Not only have they stood firm, but they must continue to grow. And so he prays at the end of chapter 3 that they would grow in faith and love and holiness. And he begins to emphasize not only their standing, but now they're growing in more areas. They're beginning to grow spiritually in, in other areas of life. And so that's what starts us off in chapter 4 when Paul writes, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you 
through the Lord Jesus. This morning we're going to look at just these two verses. These two are pivotal to the rest of the book. They sort of provide the umbrella, the, the sort of governing theme for the rest of chapters 4 and 5. As we go through 4 and 5, at points it might seem disconnected because it's Paul addressing a series of topics. It's either things that perhaps Paul wished to teach when he was there in Thessalonica and ran out of time before he was chased out of town, or it's things that Timothy comes back with questions or observations from his time there. It's areas where the culture is impinging on the church. And so Paul now will go into all of these different practical areas that he will address, and this is sort of the umbrella statement that, that forms the theme for it all here at the beginning of chapter 4. It's also an appeal to all of us. This statement in 4, 1, and 2 that we're going to look at this morning is really an appeal to everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. This is a call to how we ought to be aiming our lives as believers, what our direction ought to be. And in addition... I think these two verses are also just a sort of simple plan, if you will, following up on what Stuart has wonderfully preached the last couple of weeks about disciple-making. This really gives a plan for disciple-makers. In just a couple of sentences, it provides a direction for what our aim should be as we disciple people in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the walk with Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, we should be engaged in proclaiming the gospel to others, in, in being used by God to lead them to Christ, and then being involved in their lives, engaging with them in growing in Christ, in learning to walk with Christ. And all of that is contained in these couple of directions here. First Thessalonians, really, Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica is really disciple-making 101. This is just a wonderful picture of what it looks like to see the Apostle Paul with a young group of believers and how he is shepherding them, how he is teaching and instructing them. And it helps us to learn what it's like to not only proclaim the gospel, but to pray for people and to encourage people and to come alongside in ministry to them to help them to grow. And so specifically now, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this simple plan for, for personal growth for you and I and for our making of disciples really all aims at this, and this will kind of be our focal point today, growing in pleasing God. Growth in pleasing God. That's, that's the aim of what we are called to and the aim of what we are called to disciple others toward, that they would grow in pleasing God. As I said, Paul's going to spend the rest of 1 Thessalonians addressing these topics and they all go under this calling of grow in pleasing God. If you are to grow in pleasing God, that means God will begin impacting you in a whole bunch of areas of your life. He will begin to affect how you think and how you act and how you respond. And, and so he'll address things like work and sex and interpersonal relationships and relationships within the local church and just some very simple, serious, practical aspects of everyday life all under this same heading of as you grow in pleasing God, this is how that should affect that area of your life. This is how that should change your thinking about that area of life. This is how this should affect your doing in whatever that area is. And so if we are 
if we are set on pleasing God more tomorrow than today and today more so than yesterday, then we are right on track with, with what this passage is teaching. As it says, we are pleasing God, but we need to continue to grow in pleasing God, we need to excel still more as we see when we go through it. Uh, you have it in the notes in your bulletin, just four points that we'll kind of use to outline these couple of verses, and that is the aim, the authority, the attitude, and the approach the aim we've already talked about a little bit, but we'll talk about it some more in just a moment. He begins verse 1 with finally then. That's that point when you hear the preacher say, finally then, you think, oh, good, we're down to like five minutes max at this point when he says finally, or you're in a long conversation with somebody and they say, well, finally, and you're thinking to yourself, finally, we reach that point. So it doesn't really mean quite that when Paul says it here. This is where we preachers get it from when we say finally and we go on and on. It's two words in the Greek that are found nowhere else in the New Testament, and it really has the sense of, and now for the rest, here's what remains. It's basically a transitional statement. He has spent chapters 1 through 3, this long section, encouraging them, This is what God is doing in your midst. I see you standing firm. That is God at work in you for your uh, labor of love, your work of faith, all of these things that he has delighted in. God is doing that in you. We're praying for you to continue to grow. Now for the rest. Now for the the other things that we need to speak about. And, and, And applying all of that now to some practical areas of life. So finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So let's start with that aim that we've already established when he says we ask and urge you to grow in pleasing God. You're already pleasing God by your life. You're already walking with him. But we are asking and urging you to grow in this area. There's the request in the ask but there's the urgency in this. This is not just a hope you do this. There is an exhortation here. We are urging you to do this. And he's urging them to grow in pleasing God. Paul wrote, just as you're now doing, as a follower of Jesus Christ, don't get stagnant. Don't grow content. Don't don't just sort of stop in your spiritual growth. Or, as the Thessalonians no doubt are facing, allow persecution to sort of cause you to hunker down and, and not grow. He says, I urge you to do so more and more. A lesson for you and I that, that I think we know is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we never reach a point on this side of eternity where we have arrived in terms of spiritual growth, where we have sort of reached the mark And we are perfectly there and all is well at that point. We are constantly in a state of growth. And and he, he emphasizes that even by the way he uses those verbs, we ask and urge you, present tense verbs. It's the idea of not just, this is not just a one time thing. You need to do this from here on out. This is Paul saying, we're asking you, we're urging you, we are continuing to urge you in this way. It's a great reminder for us as we engage in disciple-making with people, and that is to keep coming alongside and to keep urging them to grow in pleasing God because that's what Scripture's calling us to here. This is a continuous asking and urging because we need to keep striving to please God more and more. New American Standard uses the language excel still more here, and I think that's a good translation. The idea is when it comes to your walk with God, 
and, and pleasing Christ as you walk in obedience to him, as you are now doing, excels still more. He uses a, a, a verb there that means to abound or to be in excess of something, and then he puts an adverb on it that says more. So it's the idea of, I know you're doing this. Continue to please God and overflow in it. Do it even more. Seek to make that your ambition, to please him. Regardless of where you are in your walk with Christ, whether you're new to the faith, you've recently trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, or whether you have been a believer in Jesus Christ for decades, you are called to continue to grow in him, to continue to, to see God work in areas of where you can please him even more. We, we should be regularly focusing and refocusing on how is God affecting my thinking in this area of my life or my work or my family or my interaction with people? How, how is God impacting this area and how can I better please him in how I approach this subject or that? It's kind of like operating a boat. If you've ever operated a small boat and you've been out on a, a lake or somewhere and, and you're, you're aiming for a dock that's somewhere on the other side, you understand that you, you don't just sort of set the direction and, and it goes automatically because the, the waves come and the wind comes and there's current from other boats and there's all sorts of movement. And so you start out with the wheel right there and before you know it, you're gradually drifting off course. And so the whole time when you're operating that boat, whether it's the tiller or the wheel, you are constantly making little corrections. You're constantly trying to get it back on course to, to the goal of what you're aiming at. When it comes to pleasing God, that is what our walk should look like as daily, our daily walk as believers. We don't, at the moment of salvation, get some great spiritual autopilot that makes it so that all of our decisions from here on out are right, and we do all of the right things, and it's all just perfect henceforth. We know that. It's a constant growing in awareness of what God is doing in my life, what he's teaching me in his word, and, and helping me to make wise and godly choices in, in new areas of life each and every day and allow his word to impact me there. We're always growing as believers. And so each day is offering new opportunities with which to glorify Christ and learn more about choices that please him, whether that be in our conversations with one another, in our work, in our attitude about sex, in our relationships. It just goes on and on. All of that, there should be these little course corrections going on throughout our daily life. As we grow in the Word of God, it should be speaking to us and, and affecting and changing, sometimes hammering us and, and, and making us aware of patterns of sin, sometimes encouraging us about where we are going, but constantly moving us toward that mark of pleasing God. So Paul, at points in these latter two chapters, will speak very candidly very boldly about the, the, the truths that he is speaking to them. We're going to see this next week. When it comes to sex, here is God's will. When it comes to work, to providing for your family, this is what pleases God. When it comes to how you interact with other people, your relationships within the church, this is what it should look like. These aren't suggestions. These aren't nice ideas that, that if we tried them, eh, they may or may not work. This is God's word speaking to us about what it looks like to please God. This is God telling us, this is what I want you to do in these areas. This is how I want you to live. The question typically that that will bring up when we are maybe convicted about a certain area or something begins to, to, to 
prompt us to think differently. The, the, the temptation there is, is to have a question of authority. It's something along the line of says who. Why, why do I have to do it this way? Why is this way pleasing to God? Why can't I keep doing what I want to do? I enjoy doing what I'm doing, so why do I have to stop doing that? Or why do I have to do this? Paul is writing to this young group of believers. Surely there are many there who are still very immature spiritually, still learning basic truths about God. And that's why he goes to great lengths in these verses then to answer this question of authority. If you look again in verse 1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk. And then verse 2, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. There are times when all of us struggle with authority, when all of us struggle with that sort of says-who attitude. You know, why, why do I have to do it that way? Why can't I do? Why, th- this is what feels good to me right now. Why can't I do this? Why do I have to do it this way? Carry that over into discipling, and, and, and it gets even trickier sometimes when you lovingly come alongside someone and say, hey, brother, I love you, but but this path you're on is not good. This is not the way to go. You're not pleasing God by how you're responding to this, by how you're thinking about this. Then naturally, there's, there might be some pushback of, well, why? What, who are you to tell me? Why do I have to do it this way or that way? And what these verses make absolutely clear is that our authority must be the Lord and His Word that we stand on his authority. That's why he says that we urge you in the Lord Jesus, the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. If our instruction, our correction, our exhortation, our, our discipling, if all of that rests on truth from God's word, then we have authority on which to stand. It's, it's his authority. And that's what Paul is saying At points, he's going to hit on stuff here that no doubt there will be some pushback. There will be, you're talking about a a pagan culture these people have been raised in, lived in, and are surrounded by. And Paul's talking about living very different in the midst of that culture. And there's going to be some sort of questions of, well, why do we have to do that? Why do we have to live that way? And that's why his emphasis here is on, this this is in the Lord Jesus. This is what God says. This is his authority. That's why when, when, when we preach, when Stuart and I preach on Sunday mornings, the, the, the hope is that when you go home, you're not saying, well, Stuart said or Doug said, you're saying, well, that's what God's Word says. That's what, that's what I see in Scripture. That's the truth. Because Stuart and I know how much wisdom we have combined. I, I think we could probably do, you could do a good fantasy football team, and I could maybe help out with NASCAR stuff. And beyond that, if we're not giving you this then you're not getting wisdom. I mean, that ultimately, biblical authority is where that has to rest. And and that's what he's calling him to. And that's why in in verse 2, when he says, for you know what instructions we gave you, that word instructions could also be translated commands. It was used in the the ancient culture, in the, the Roman culture, for the word for command in military terms. And so it carries that sort of weight to it. You know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. That is another way of Paul saying, this is not just general guidelines. These are authoritative commands, and they are rooted in Christ. The authority is his. We are simply speaking to you what we know to be the truth 
of God's word. We have spoken as his servants. And so that, that tells us when he says, you know what instructions we gave you, that when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica, not only did they deliver the gospel and people came to faith in Christ, but then they began to teach and disciple and exhort. They began to talk about how this life in Christ should impact things for them on a daily basis, what it should look like as they live that out. And they began to, to bring them along and teach them. And so that's what he's saying here. He's recalling that. And now he's going to build on that and begin to impact other areas. And his point is to say, this is in the authority of the Lord. Edmund Hebert writes, Paul does not say that the Lord Jesus gave the orders through us, but rather that we gave them through him. The meaning, of course, is that they were transmitted through the Lord Jesus as their agent. He is the source, ultimately. He is the power behind these. He is the authoritative one. He is the agent. It is his commands. And so Paul says, what, what we're teaching, where we're offering correction, where we're exhorting, those are commands that we have from Christ himself. We speak as he has spoken, and we seek to be ambassadors of his truth. So the aim is to grow in pleasing God. The authority is the Lord and his word. We are his servants, and so we disciple resting on that authority. Look at, though, something about his attitude here in doing this. If you notice again in verse 1, he starts with, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. Remember again, chapters 1 through 3, if you, if you were to say, relatively speaking, easy part of the letter, hard part of the letter, chapters 1 through 3 are sort of the easier part in the sense of it is Paul saying, God is doing a great work in your midst. We are excited for what we see in your midst. Chapters 4 and 5 now, it, it gets a little bit more serious. There are areas of your life, some of you are struggling in terms of work. Some of you are struggling still by embracing cultural norms about sex and what's, what's permitted. Um, some of you are not interacting well and playing nice with one another. And so the last couple of chapters gets to be the harder part. But here's the thing, is that throughout, even as he deals with these harder issues, Paul maintains this same gracious, kind, winsome attitude. He doesn't shift in tone, but his attitude for exhorting them is filled with the same love as it was when he was commending them. They are still to him brothers, and he will use that term repeatedly even through this last part of 1 Thessalonians. Finally, then, brothers. The warmth that characterizes his love for them and his awe of what God is doing in their midst also characterizes the discipleship when it gets tough, when it deals with areas that start to, to, to poke at the conscience a little bit. And he still loves them, and he's still coming to them in brotherly love. So when he has to warn them about areas where the world is tempting them and, and luring them towards sin, they do not cease to be his dear friends. That, that term brothers speaks of being joined together on the same spiritual plane. And so here is Paul, the great apostle, who has seen Jesus Christ while on the road to Damascus, who has had Jesus speak to him and who has traveled all over the Roman Empire preaching and planting churches, saying, you and I stand together as brothers and sisters in Christ before the foot of the cross. We come to him on the, on, on the same plane, and you are siblings of mine. We are both sinners redeemed by his saving grace and both in need of his, saving, of his sustaining grace. Paul's love for them is also evident in, in just in the tone in verse 1. Not only does he call them brothers, but when he says how you ought to walk 
He then goes on to say, just as you are doing. He commends them again. Even in the midst of his preparing them for correction and exhorting them, even there he again points to the fact that you're doing this. This is good. I'm I'm encouraging you. We're just going to take it a step further now. That that is just a, a marvelous lesson for you and I for parenting, for discipleship, for coming alongside people. It is that, that simple habit of, of looking for areas where we can see God at work and, and properly commending them and leading, if we can, with that kind of encouragement as we walk toward the exhortation that, that comes as well to continue to grow. Um, he, he says, just as you received from us, just as you were doing, we've talked about that word received before because he's used it before. He says, you, you received what we taught as the word of God. You took it, you embraced it, you brought it to yourself, and now you're living it out. And you're doing that. And all I'm saying to you here now is we're going to do it more. We're going to find more areas in which to, to open ourselves up to the word of God and learn it and apply it. Paul was encouraged, and he was encouraging them, and that's what we need to do as we disciple others. This is is a great picture of what stewardship looks like, something Jesus taught about often. If you're faithful with a few things, you're given more. If you're faithful in the simple instructions, it's sort of a a movement, a progress forward, and, and that's what you're seeing here in the Thessalonians. It's a marvelous example of those who... Paul and Silas came, planted the church, preached the gospel, gave them foundational teachings. They took them. They followed them. He says, now now we're going to step on to some harder stuff here. Now we're going to touch on your life a little bit more and and impact some other areas because that's what you do as believers. We go from milk to meat. We continue to grow in our understanding of the word of God. And they had been faithful, and now we're seeking to apply Paul as the wisdom of Christ to other areas of life. So his tone... Even when he speaks hard stuff in chapters 4 and 5, never lacks brotherly love. It always comes with a sense of of compassion and concern. You are siblings in Christ, and it is a posture of of love and humility that should mark all of our dealings. Whether you are correcting children, whether you are coming alongside a wayward brother or sister, whether you are seeking to comfort uh, another believer who is brokenhearted over something, whether you are teaching a new believer... One thing for sure is they should have a clear sense of your love for them, that, that you are loving them as Christ seeks to love them, that you are correcting and encouraging because you do love them, because you care about them, and that's what God has called us to do. So we've seen the aim, which is to grow in pleasing God. The authority for speaking to that direction is the Lord and his word. The attitude is one of brotherly love that should permeate all that we do. Finally, there's the area, the, the matter of approach. I think you've already seen some of this in the text, but I just want to highlight a couple things to make it clear. The approach for communicating this aim of growth in pleasing God is instruction, correction, and exhortation based on God's word. It is ultimately taking and teaching and applying and exhorting with God's truth. We live in this feelings oriented, pluralistic, sort of self-sufficient culture. And one of the consequences of that is the temptation to go soft when it comes to giving people instruction, correction, or exhortation. We have a real tendency to, to feel like, I, 
I'm not telling them what to do. That's not my place because the culture is constantly preaching at us. Just, just tolerate everything and don't speak back to it. Don't exhort back to it. Just, just be tolerant and gentle and it'll all be fine. And, and, and that, it gets into our own thinking and it just makes it easy so that when we see a fellow believer who is slipping off the rails and not pleasing God in some way, and it's clear that they are running contrary to Scripture, and we know what God's Word says, we may still feel sort of uneasy about doing what we need to do and saying what we need to say. All, all of my kids are older, and, and I, I struggle in this area of just saying, oh, I just hope they get it. You know, Somehow they should just get it by osmosis. They just watch me, because of course I've done it so well, right? Just, just get it that way. Or, or, or what, we, what we really love is somebody who's struggling is just to come to us and say, I think I'm walking off the path of pleasing God. Can you offer me some correction? <laughs> it, softball, right? Something easy. It doesn't usually work that way. And, and that's why Paul is demonstrating here this proactive teaching of God's word as the example. This is the example from Paul to the Thessalonians, and it is for you and I, and that is that instruction and correction and exhortation is the pathway to pleasing God, because that's where we learn what God's will is. That's where we read passages that say, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is where we get it. It's by receiving instruction in God's truth. It's by being open to correction from God's word. It is being open to an exhortation from a brother or sister who brings God's truth. Those are the means that God uses to call us to obedience. I've said it many times before here and to others that one of the things that I have loved at Grace Bible Church from the first time we came here as members to these last couple of years as being an elder is the fact that together the primary love of this congregation is to receive God's word. It is to be taught and to grow in the word of God and then together as a community to seek to apply that, to, to take what we've learned and strive to live it out and, and let the Bible affect how we think and act and speak so that God can point out those areas in my life that are displeasing to him. And that sort of teachable humble spirit is beautiful and commendable, and it is what's, what's being characterized here amongst the Thessalonians. This, this willing embrace to now go to the next step of, okay, so now what does God's word teach me about this area of life? Paul spoke of how the Thessalonians received God's instructions or commands for how they were supposed to walk, and in fact, in verse one, he says, you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. That word ought speaks of necessity how it is necessary for you to walk. And that's why we go back to instruction and correction and exhortation, because God's word speaks truth. It, it, it speaks in terms of clear propositional statements. This is what God calls you to. These are not suggestions or general guidelines. Paul says, this is how it is necessary for you to walk. And so when there are biblical commands or instructions or exhortations, then our, our desire should be to want to follow those, to want to learn them and follow them. And all of that is because at the core of Christian belief is a commitment to absolute truth. Because ultimately we believe God has revealed himself through his word and his word is true and therefore if he says it, even if I am at first uncomfortable with it, I need to spend some time meditating on it and trying to figure out what it is that God is saying through his truth to me and how that applies to my life. 
we all have the capacity to rationalize away the clear teaching of God's word, to come up with excuses and to blame shift, especially when it begins to point directly at sin in our own lives. For most biblical commands, you can find some religious studies professor somewhere who has said, oh, that's an ancient command and it doesn't apply anymore. That was just back at that point in time in that city. And now just, just love people. That's all. That's really all it really says. Well, the Bible says there are commands for how it is necessary to live as believers. You receive from us how you ought to walk and please God. It says there, there are instructions. There are exhortations, and they are gods to us. If I live in regular opposition to those things, then how do I claim to love Jesus Christ? If, if I am going to call myself a follower of his and yet dismiss his exhortation to pursue purity, to be truthful, to be kind, to be merciful, to be generous, to love people who are different from me, to show hospitality to other people. If I'm, if I'm not interested in any of those, then how is it that I claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ because he has taught in his word how you ought to live and to please God? In fact, at the end of this section, it, we'll look at it more next week, but if you look down at verse 8, he says, Therefore... Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So in other words, if you and I say that the Spirit of God indwells me, and yet I am not interested in receiving correction, exhortation, and instruction from God's word, some disconnect is going on there. Because if God's Spirit is within me, then, then I should be longing for you to exhort me as a brother or sister in Christ to take the truth of God's word and offer me correction if you see something that needs correction, to instruct, because those are the means that God has given to urge us to press on in growth. R.C. Sproul has written uh, the book Pleasing God. It's essentially Sproul's treatise on the, the issue of sanctification, topic of sanctification, which is growing more like Christ, less like the world. It is what happens after you become a believer in Jesus Christ. You are set apart more and more to grow like Christ and to be less like the world. And in that book, um, Sproul speaks to growth in pleasing God is sanctification. So everything we've been talking about, growing in pleasing God that's what sanctification is, remember? And so sanctification, we'll talk about it next week, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would grow. But Sproul goes on to say it's a lifelong process, and he describes it this way. He says it involves a diligent struggle against a multitude of obstacles. It's like the journey of John Bunyan's pilgrim in the book The Pilgrim's Progress, filled with pitfalls, laden with perils. It's a journey that takes us through the dark night of the soul, through the valley of the shadow of death, and through the wilderness of temptation. The journey has but one guarantee. Christ promises to go with us and to bring us out the other side. Our Lord finishes what he starts. Therein lies our hope. We are not alone in this ongoing pursuit to please God. We are surrounded by the body of Christ that is encouraging and exhorting and instructing we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ that is bringing to mind His truth to encourage and guide us. And we have been given grace by Christ Himself to grow into His image. And by that grace, we are called to embrace the commands of the Word of God so that we might grow more like Him, like Jesus, of whom God the Father said, This is my beloved Son 
in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom and teaching, instruction, correction, and exhortation of your word. Thank you that as Paul did not leave the Thessalonians to sort of meander through life in a pagan city on their own, but gave them truth to cling to, to hold fast, to follow. Lord, you have given us the the benefit of your word, and it instructs and guides. It is is fitting and suitable for teaching and correction and training and righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped to pursue the growth in pleasing you that you have called us to. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not yet trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, Lord, may you bring them to that place of seeing his sacrifice on the cross, his death and his resurrection as the sufficient price for sin. There are many in the world who who somehow feel like pleasing God is just a matter of doing good deeds and hoping that they outweigh the bad ones. But the reality is, Lord, we are all sinners. We are all falling short of the perfection that we've seen in Jesus Christ. And so it is only in trusting in him. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here who are not trusting alone in Jesus Christ, that this would be the day when they would bow before him and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, for we who are trusting in Christ, help us by your Spirit's work within us and by the the good comfort and encouragement of our brothers and sisters around us to make it our ambition to continue to grow in pleasing you. Lord, Help our hearts to be open to those areas where where there are areas where you just need to speak to, that in our thinking, in our doing, in our speaking, we have fallen short of pleasing you. Help us to be open to your correction, willing to receive it and embrace it, and to see it for what Scripture says it is, the necessity of how we ought to walk. Lord, in all of this, we pray that it would be done out of a sense of great passion and worship and love for you who has redeemed us and broken sin's power over us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.